Welcome back to this week's free episode of Trash Future Season 3. Season 3. Uh, it's me, Riley. I'm here, uh, not in studio, uh, with Milo. Mm. Mm. Hello, it's me, your boy, uh, social distancing. I am actually healthier than I've ever been. I'm eating, like, balanced meals because my mum's cooking and I'm, like, exercising every day. This is wild. A <laughs> pandemic has it's made thriving. me healthier. What the hell? Yeah. What was wrong with my life before? <laughs> uh, we also have Alice in... Yeah. Quarantine Glasgow. Salwate omnes. Looking forward to like using all of my useless classical education on this one. That's right. Ita Wero. Uh, we also have Hussein calling in from sunny southwest London. It is not sunny. Actually, no, it is kind of sunny. I just have my I've had my blinds down. I I, I haven't like opened any of my blinds since I quarantined two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, you're doing careful. the reverse. You're doing the reverse of miasma theory of disease. <laughs> we are also very excited to be joined by Patrick Wyman. Uh, who is the host of Tides of History podcast, and who also hosted the Fall of Rome podcast, which is a self-contained series you can find. I heartily recommend both. You should pause this and check them both out now if you haven't. Uh, but Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, so we're, we decided to have uh, Patrick, who's a specialist in late antiquity, and let's say the decline of what you'd consider the Roman Empire on for just it's a coincidence, no actually. We've had it booked. Yeah. yeah, we've had it. We've had it booked for like two years. It's <laughs> totally a coincidence. Mm. Um, but uh, like we said in our in the first episode of season three, trying to understand the ways in which, let's say, the neoliberal order might be coming apart at the seams a little bit when faced with any pressure that requires it to have slack in the system. Like we said, that's doing gravity lessons when we've already stepped off the ledge learning from these previous imperial falls to try and understand what's going on in the moment of rupture. Yeah, it's a oh, bit damn, late. We're doing Looney Tunes shit. We're walking off the cliff, <laughs> but we're still going in a straight line until we look down. Yeah. Yes, that's what we're doing. This, this episode will be an hour of us just looking down before we start falling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, do, do, like, do we have Acme painted anywhere just to, like, just to make sure we're getting the brand integration? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Matt Hancock running into a huge black circle painted on a cliff face. Oh, even better, <laughs> did we see Dominic Cummings doing his roadrunner act out of the front door of Downing Street? <laughs> So yeah, it's, he's sprinting out. I would find it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, yeah, it's I, great. I would find that very funny if he was running out, but it was for a completely unrelated coronavirus reason. Like he has this massive <laughs> backpack. You don't know what's inside the backpack, but it's like a completely unrelated thing. Um, yeah. that's like, oh no, yeah. I have to make this delivery. Right. He's, he's, actually, he's actually like doing side hustles as a like a delivery guy. Um, Dominic oh, Cummings oh, shit, is doing Postmates. Death Stranding in real life. <laughs> uh, all right, but uh, before. Before we get into talking about history, I want to talk a little bit about death cults because <laughs> I think we may have identified a modern-day Mithridatic cult. Wait, mm. I didn't it know we were doing an episode about the Republican Party. Mm, the damn clowns <laughs> in Congress. Yes, yeah. finally, someone's going to speak truth to the clowns in Congress. Um, no, so what's happened is uh, some Federalist morons and various Republican governors uh, exemplified by Jesse Kelly, who's, uh, I think, yeah, one of the Federalist idiots, uh, said, if given the choice between dying uh, because of going to work and catching coronavirus and plunging the country I love into a depression, I'd happily die. That's it. 
we have Fedayeen for the Dow Jones. Mm, they finally got their, yeah. their war. It's it's great. We feel so great well, about it. This is what it is. It's like it's American jihad, right? It's like, mm. but it's like <laughs> it, it's American jihad in the sense like the principle is the same, i.e., like you're sacrificing your body and your soul for um, God. But in this case, like God is the stock market. God is like General Motors, Facebook, and McDonald's. And the thing about like Islamic jihad is that at least you kind of like the reward that comes out of it provides a decent incentive. Um, you know, you get the 72 virgins and you get like the palace and everything. Whereas like in America, it's like the jihad doesn't even pay off, right? You just like no. leave yeah, you, you just get, leave generational debt. Right. You get it's, leave it's gener- an aspirational jihad. Aspiration. In, Ameri- in American heaven, you get all the Mountain Dew you can drink. <laughs> hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I want to turn to Patrick and I want to I want to say, how does this compare to Roman death cults? <laughs> how does this compare to Roman death cults? This one is not as cool. I think that's fairly straightforward. Like it's not as it's not as interesting like dying for a blooming onion or like some mid-range boneless buffalo wings um as it is to you know die for some sort of like really like like there were some cool death cults and there was like the Romans did cool stuff with death like if nothing else it was it could be mass entertainment but like there's nothing fun or interesting about like drowning in fluid uh, alone in a hospital room, like or or like a parking garage or something, which is probably where we're headed. Patrick, you subscribe uh, to my OnlyFans. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not nearly as much fun as like getting eaten by a tiger for the like to the cheers of a few hundred drunk Romans. Like mm. this is not as interesting or as fun. We, we yeah. should do the no. thing that Alan Sugar believes Russia actually did of letting loose lions on the streets to encourage self-quarantine. <laughs> Alan, Alan Sugar fucking rules. Yeah. I love that guy. Like A guy invented like a big clunky landline phone you can send an email from in 2002 and then for some reason he was in the government for a while because that's just Britain. <laughs> um, but I, I also love the idea. It's, yeah, it's like, in 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 ancient Rome, like you'd kneel down and be covered by the blood of a slaughtered bull as you were inducted into like the death cult um, inner circle. Here, you just yeah, you, you walk out the door and you say, "I am not willing to sacrifice my treats. I will sacrifice my life before I sacrifice my treats." Dolce et decorum est pro patria Wendy's. Yeah, it's so important <laughs> for me to to give the Schnippers delivery guy a big wet kiss on the lips. <laughs> yeah, look, like the, in the United States, if you can't drown in ranch dressing, then you're not really living. Like that's the <laughs> that is the point of living in the United States is that like you can get a tub of ranch or blue cheese or just like a literal gallon of soda and kill yourself and that's like that's the but that's the united states like if you can't do that then you're not really alive well, <laughs> people but farmhands been drowning on this farm for la many a long year drowning in that there silo ranch dressing no one cared before <laughs> uh, the the other the other the other thing i want to talk about yeah because it's crazy that right like the united states like has dropped nuclear bombs obliterated like millions of lives caused untold misery everywhere just to keep this consumer economy going and now they're like, I will die for the tater tot. But also, <laughs> uh, when, when faced with the prospect of people like getting support through this time when they can't go to work or they'll die in the UK, where we don't have a president who's just being like, well, fuck it. Go back to work anyway. See if you live. It'll make you stronger. Uh, builds character. Douglas Carswell, the former leader of UKIP and noted fucking moron. Uh, the proof that Oxford doesn't make you smart. 
mm. um, said that any oh, kind did he go of to Oxford. Jesus. Unfortunately, yes. Even by Oxford uh, standards, that one's a slip up. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, my <laughs> well. uh, 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 Carswell said, uh, "Oh, a basic income for like freelancers and people off work was tried by the Romans in 123 BC, and it specifically destroyed the Republic." Patrick, what do you <laughs> Which think is about why that? Why they continue to do it in the Empire? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say like on the grand list of things that destroyed the Roman Republic on a scale from uh, aristocratic self-interest and private armies to um, nailing Cicero's hands to the Senate door, like the 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 Anona was not like high up on the list. Mm. I mean, also, that's just, like, that's just one man's opinion. It's just one man's opinion. <laughs> it's such a bad analogy for UBI because what it was was a corn. Like they just gave people corn. It's food stamps. That's what it is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not a um, universal basic income. Like the uni- the Romans. Like it's just like everything about that was dumb. Everything about it was it was a bad like attempt to shoehorn in what I assume is probably a god awful book. And so like I give him credit for trying at least. But wow, Oof. <laughs> not good. Before we move on to the meat of this topic, though, right, I want to also want to reflect on something. All these people, like, who are promising to die for the economy or who are willing to, like, just torpedo millions of lives so, like, the, the liberal job market stays exactly as it was, which, of course, is eternally true. It's never been anything different. Wait, what the fuck are Jesse Kelly and Douglas Carswell going to do by going to work that's going to save the economy? Kiss they're both professional the simpletons. Guy. They're both going to they're going to kiss the delivery guys. They're going to go into in, into work and like type out the same fucking article about how there's too many genders and actually that's quite like Elagabalus and then like all die. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Uh, okay. The trouble with Heliogabulus was that he refused to pick one gender. If he'd have just picked one, it would have all have been fine. I mean, I mean, if they if they die in the last thing that they write is the same gender joke about identifying as an Apache helicopter, like that is technically martyrdom, right? So this is like their, this is their jihad. I we just love the idea should... of like a Roman shithead being like, actually, I identify as a war chariot. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I actually, I... I'm Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, all right, all right, all right. Settle down, children. Um, so I want to move to our our main topic, which is the fall of Rome. What was it? What does it mean? How should we understand it in the context of what's going on now? And I guess I'll, I'll kick us off not with the correct view that we'll explain later but the commonly held and deeply wrong view, the one that we get from British historian Edward Gibbon, which is essentially that morally degenerate emperors spent too much time getting sucked off and doing cosmopolitan weird elitism and not doing good British, uh, sorry, Roman values. His main culprit was a concept called decadence. Patrick, can you explain a little more this theory? Okay, so... In Gibbon's mind, decadence encompassed a few things. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the getting sucked off and doing weird cosmopolitan elitism thing was a big part of it. In Gibbon's mind, persona, uh, that was uh, the adoption of Christianity was the big um, piece of evidence for that or the bi- or like the big manifestation of, of his concept of decadence and that. Christianity in particular and this kind of broader idea of decadence decoupled the Romans from their traditional civic values and virtues, and those, in Gibbon's mind, had underpinned the empire. They, they um, lost track with real America, with Main Street. Ex- exactly. Yeah. They, they lost touch with the Chili's and the Applebee's, and at that point, the empire fell. 
all the guys who owned like horse-drawn jet ski dealerships were just absolutely <laughs> furious with the emperor. Yeah. The, mo- the moderate latifundia we thought would rally against Nero. <laughs> um, so this is, and this is all wrapped up in the year 476, when the last sort of properly quote-unquote Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, is like the last of a series of pretty much bad leaders. Um, and but that's not just Romulus Gibbon's propaganda. Sounds about, deeply like a SoundCloud rapper. Yeah, but that's that's not just Gibbon's propaganda about Britain, because most historians tend to write to make an argument, or many historians, especially ones in like 18th century Britain, were writing to make an argument about their present day. Right. It's also even the product of uh, Emperor Justinian's propaganda about reconquest, like this idea that there was a dramatic fall because of some bad leaders. It's just sort of layers and layers of propaganda of people trying to make a point about their own time. Exactly. Yeah. So the 476 date, as far as we can tell, actually comes initially from a source called the Chronicle of Marcellinus Comes, um, Marcellinus the Count, who was an official in the court of Justinian, um, late 520s, early 530s. He wrote a chronicle. It's an interesting chronicle, lots of good stuff in there. But this is the first time when we get to see the 476 date. But the whole point is that that comes out of Justinian's circle. It, it is it is quite literally propaganda, especially because there was still a guy claiming to be the Western emperor until 480, Julius Nepos. So like the 476 date, if you're looking for that, isn't even a good one. Um, Romulus Augustulus is pretty is pretty unimportant. It matters a great deal if you're Justinian, you know, what is that like? 50 years later, trying to make a good argument as to why you should sweep back and uh, and reclaim the Western Empire. That's the context in which it makes sense. Mm hmm. And I, I think the, the, the reason we, I'm talking about this now is that it's really important to compare this story and the sort of falseness of this story, the it's propagandistic nature, to all of the people who are saying that Trump is the problem of why we can't respond to this yeah, crisis. We, we have to go back to before the psychic trauma of 2016. Listen, I've had Jared write a chronicle. It's a beautiful chronicle. It really explains all the problems going on today. A lot of very, a lot of very nasty problems that we're going to get to the bottom of. <laughs> I love that it's Trump getting Jared to write a chronicle about which, which like, um, which of the decadent uh, uh, magazine editors have been very unfair to him. Very cool. <laughs> um, so, so, but like the idea is there is this li- idea. I think it's a fundamentally liberal one that we can just go back to normal if we remove the Trump or the Johnson or undo the Brexit, and that without these things causing, th- causing chaos everywhere, we would not be experiencing such difficulty in the face of a system-testing pandemic. And it's like people who were saying this, like maybe they were saying in 480 in Rome, Man, I wish we could go back to the 212 Olympic Games opening ceremony put on by Caracalla. That was the high point of our society. I just want to go back then. Hell um, yeah. Because that would require in Rome, acknowledging that by the year 212, which I think it had, the rot had already set in. You can't go back. These aren't short-term problems. They're long-term problems that just all become apparent at once. Oh, but have you considered Orange Man bad? <laughs> So, uh, uh, Patrick, I'm going to quote from your, your article here because I, uh, from Mother Jones, which I thought was really excellent. The popular story version of this particular falling empire might focus on a twice-divorced serial philanderer and bullshit artist and make him the villain, rendering his downfall or ultimate triumph the climax of the narrative. But it's far more likely that the real meat of the issue will be found in a tax code full of sweetheart deals for the ultra-wealthy, 
the slashed budgets of county public health offices, the lead-contaminated water supplies, probably literally for Rome, and that's to say nothing of the decades of pointless, self-perpetuating, and almost undiscussed imperial wars that will produce no victories but plenty of expenditures in blood and treasure and a great deal of justified ill will. So can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, so this is basically an argument for deep long-term structural processes being more important being more important than these individuals like Trump and Boris Johnson. Like it's not to say that they don't matter at all. Like I think as we're seeing fairly clearly with regard to the pandemic, um the 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 responses of people at the top who are making decisions do matter to some extent, but they're playing but the context has already been set. The context has been set long before. It doesn't matter whether Donald Trump is in charge or Joe Biden or whoever. It doesn't change the fact that you don't have a, a, that you don't have a a functional system of public health in the United States. It doesn't change the it doesn't change the fact that you don't have single payer health care. It doesn't change the fact that when millions of people lose their jobs as they would have under absolutely any circumstances. Um, that those people were going to lose their health insurance in the face of a pandemic. Um, it doesn't change any of that. It doesn't change the fact that like that like county public health offices having have been getting their budget slashed, especially for the last decade since the Great Recession, but for all but also for much longer than that. It doesn't change regional inequality. It doesn't change the decades and decades of growing inequality within society. Like it doesn't change any of that. Like all of the, those are the set conditions within which our our feckless leaders are playing. Of course. <laughs> and the, the this is being the gravity, right? This is the this is the materialist. Exactly. Yes. This is the this is the materialist explanation. <laughs> By the way, I, if you're listening at home, please imagine all of us standing just like one meter off of a ledge holding up all of this on a sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the, like the big road closed sign that we just like have battered straight through. Bridge out. Um, so, uh, but this is also the narrative of people like Sarah Kendazor, Andrew Adonis, and Edward Gibbon. It's that there is one particular short-term Malin influence, and their awfulness cascades down and makes society bad. So whether that's Nero or Romulus Augustulus, or Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, it just doesn't, it's not, it doesn't deal with the fact that even a good leader wouldn't have been prepared to face this crisis. They may have faced it a little bit better, but they would be using the same decayed set of tools to do it. I just love the idea that fucking Suetonius or whoever would just have been a poster, would just have done the like, listen up, fuck knuckles, it's time for a thread, brackets, one, <laughs> slash, I question mean, mark. Suetonius is probably my favorite Roman historian because he just includes like absolutely mental spurious details in every account that he gives. There's like no evidence for like when it's just as bit where he's like, well, yeah, the thing about Tiberius was that he uh, he used to go swimming and then like make boys like nibble his nuts while he was swimming around. <laughs> like the thing is, right? One of the things that I feel like we're learning from our present time is that like all of the stuff that we know deeply in our bones to be true is incredibly stupid. So I feel like in in 500 years time even as little as that will be like and they thought there was a tape of Trump like watching sex workers peeing on a bed <laughs> that, no come on it, it couldn't have been as venal or as stupid as that I've just been reading the account of one Jolius Mormo of the, <laughs> <laughs> the famous Brexit debate in the Senate <laughs> Yeah I, it's like that's I think that one of the big lessons of history is that it is always that stupid. Like it's always that dumb. Um, like Martin Luther, for like just to just to move us ahead about a thousand years, Martin Luther was obsessed with scatological humor. Like he just always made shit jokes. 
hundred percent of the time. And every Another metaphor poster. that came into his mind was one of was one of just like shit or some other equally like equally gross bodily function. That's just how he thought. But like we tend to write Throw that out of shit Luther's the door of a church, Some of it will stick. So Martin, <laughs> exactly. So Martin, Martin Luther would have been an anime guy in 2020. Yeah. Be, oh be, yeah. yeah. Oh, He's no an anime Twitter guy who just like has a bizarre knowledge of like animated anime titties. Mm-hmm. No, he'd that be Sargon oh, yeah. of a card. All that. All that. <laughs> Won't explain further. Sargon of Ulu. I want to. I want to go back um, to something that you. You another thing you've written, uh, Patrick, because I think um, we've. We've thoroughly poo-pooed the idea that um, this great man theory of history that sort of comes up every once and again, or the great man, or awful man, or individual. So the way you talk about the fall of Rome, I'm going to um, read from your article again. So the idea of a fall is now passe, and, f- and for, for, for better and for worse, scholars prefer to speak of a transformation of the Roman world taking place over centuries, or better still, a long, culturally distinct and important in its own right late antiquity spanning the Medi- Mediterranean world and beyond. If the Roman Empire ever did come to a real end, um, it was a long, slow process spanning many lifetimes, hardly the stuff of dramatic narratives. And one of the things I think that you explain very well about this is how the event, the fall of Rome in capitals and quotation marks, would be experienced differently in like um, York versus Ravenna versus Provence. Like the, the fall of Rome is not the same thing to these people, just as the fraying of the American polity is not the same thing in California as it is in Kansas or in England as it is in Scotland and so forth. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, whenever you have a any polity is going to include a diverse set of conditions, right? And th- that was true that's very true of the United States right now. It's true uh, it's true of Britain, it's true of um and and it was true of the Roman Empire. Like the that whenever you have that much variation in terms of the density of urban populations, the military presence, what the economy looks like, um, how connected you are to kind of the core Mediterranean era, uh, area, it's going to look and feel a lot different. It's going to look different if you're a soldier stationed on the frontier than if you're a sailor who's working out of Carthage. It's going to look different, which will look different still than if you're a, uh, a wealthy aristocrat at your summer house and at your summer house in the countryside. Like, each of those is a different experience of uh, of this, and it's going to look different at different times too. Like it depends on whether you're talking about the year 400, or you're talking about 450, or 500, or 550. Like each of those different times and places is going to is going to experience this set of processes much differently. Um, I think in our current context, that only really became clear to people with Brexit and the election of Donald Trump that like these these twin shocks that like if you're living in a rotted out industrial town, your your like what you think 2016 looks like is very different than if you're living in a posh apartment in London or Los Angeles or New York. Like your your thought of what the baseline state of the world is and therefore your experience of this of this person or people or message is going to look much different. It's going to feel much different and you're going to respond to it differently. Now I'm just imagining like Roman libs having their brain melted by Donald Trump or his equivalent being elected and claiming that it was all Visigoth interference. <laughs> I just well, one thing one thing I did want to put to you Patrick and we kind of talked about this we kind of preempted this by talking about Justinian is if you just talk about the 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 fall of Rome as being this like long kind of very highly variable process uh, you kind of you can get the sense. Well, why why do we have this idea of a capital F, capital R fall of Rome? Why do we have this idea of there being one thing that happened? And I I, I think it's worth 
saying that like it's always been a useful uh, a useful idea for all sorts of political purposes to be like Rome has fallen and, and like Romans themselves loved this shit right they loved to be melodramatic and they loved to say ah I have stubbed my toe this is the collapse of the empire and all of its values right Oh yeah, a hundred percent. The Romans, the Romans started talking about Roman decline before the uh, before the Republic had even gone away. Like they were like, you know, there's this. There, it was a, it was a deeply Roman thing to compare your to compare yourself to your ancestors and find yourself wanting. Like that, there was nothing more Roman than than thinking that your grandpa was just a badass old shithead, and that like it's and like that every the elders' whole vibe is just like everything is bad now, past good. <laughs> exactly, it's like it, it's the whole like it, the Romans were doing the pussification of America a long time before those articles appeared in the Federalist. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that was so. There's nothing more deeply Roman than that. Um, and yeah, it was a useful idea. It was a useful cudgel with which to beat the present day or or whomever with um, with the 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 sense that there was something wrong, um, that something had gone wrong, and that it was fixable if only we did this. And it, that's the same reason it's useful now. It, the the same reason that people talk about the fall of the Roman Empire now is because it's a dramatic cudgel with which to beat people. I'm loving the idea of Sulla just rolling his eyes at the woke Stasi of the Gracchi. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> in 753 BC, I, honestly, if the people if the people who went around seizing women from nearby states could see this, <laughs> but like, I, I, I'm so glad that you said that because I wanted to include that little bit of like self criticism because it's it's not to say that like this is not a useful framework for exploring a lot of the things that have gone wrong, right? It's just that like. There is a certain element where we can say, "Oh, you doing a podcast about the fall of Rome is 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 not really a like." That doesn't mean that we're talking about a thing that we can definitely say has now happened, right? It's it, oh, we're yeah. doing politics here. Yeah, yeah, and like I would never like it's partially just because I'm a miserable bastard to start with, right? <laughs> and so like I'm drawn to I'm drawn to this kind of framework. Like I think it kind of fundamentally accords with the way that I understand the world. Um, and so, like, that's a framework that's always made sense to me. I think I'm I think it's worth arguing about what it is and what you do with it. The re the biggest reason that I think it's worthwhile and this would be my this would be my basic defense of the framework of fall or end to use those kinds of terms instead of transformation or um, or even just the long late antiquity is I think it's important for us to, to understand that things can come to an end. Um, I think the reason why the 90s were the high point of this transformation stuff was because at that point in the in the wake of the end of the Soviet Union, we're living in Francis Fukuyama's end of history. Does it, there was no real sense that anything could ever get worse mm. that we, I think it's really bound up with this kind of implicit narrative of progress that that, you know, the moral arc of the universe has to bend toward justice. And so the reason why. I would go in the opposite direction. This is not, it's not solely to be contrarian. It's because things can get worse. People can die. You can have pandemics and plagues. The economy can fall apart. Political order can fall apart. Violence can increase. Like, I think it's important for us to be able to just say that this is a possible range of outcomes. It's not to say that things get worse for everybody. It, you know, what is better? What is worse? If you're a peasant living in the late sixth century, you're probably you're probably better off than you would have been living on some shithead Roman landlord's uh, like estate. Um, life has not necessarily gotten worse for you, but there may be half as many people. So. Mm. 
trade-offs. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I, like, I, we're kind of skipping ahead here because we do have some stuff about like the the various possible outcomes of this. But yeah. Like, so, yeah. But I also like. Well, I want to sort of go into that a little more, right? Where we talk about, well, are you better or worse off? So what I always keep thinking of in this case is when polities of a certain size collapse, or rather, they become unable to support the institutions that keep them running. So, for example, like the money economy that was centered in Rome uh, kept Britain in fungible currency and made it possible to, say, be a specialist potter living in a market town or a trader living in a market town or a clerk of some kind. And that the moment that the, money, that the Roman state lost its ability to continue shipping coins to Britain, Britain then became a less complex, less specialized, more diverse, more sort of feudal society pretty quickly because those institutions from the center center of the polity were not able to um continue to support that level of social complexity yeah and this is something that um historians love to argue about what the end of roman britain looked like and right now we're in a phase where they're like oh well was it really that extreme was there really that much migration um and their point is well taken like I understand that there were probably some that there were, really were some like long term continuities between Roman Britain and the Anglo Saxon world that followed. I get that, but yes, people did arrive. There was a lot of migration. We can tell this from a whole bunch of different sources. Migration is actually the simplest explanation for why you end up with the English language, for why you end up with the kind of genetic patterns that you that you end up with in the in the English population. Um, like, well, because back people, then you could say you were English, whereas now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really just like, I, I mean, I don't know, it, like to some extent, I'm just kind of like, are you crazy? Like there were cities and then there weren't cities. Like people were making um, wheel thrown pottery and then they weren't. People were building in stone and then they weren't. Like, even if that's not a catastrophe, you don't have to call that a catastrophe. That's a pretty marked shift and it happens pretty dang fast. Like it happens within the course of a lifetime or a generation and a half. Like you could literally experience the end of the Roman economy as a thing where the state is continuously pumping money, um, the state as a fiscal mechanism is continuously pumping money through the provinces, you could experience the end of that, the end of urban life, and the arrival of a whole bunch of people who didn't used to live there within one lifetime. That seems like, uh, that seems fairly marked to me. Yeah, imagine that. Sounds like I they're just, doing a Venezuela on Roman Britain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, the, I the love reason... the idea of like a shithead Roman nationalist, and I know these guys existed, and I know there's like a, a surprisingly good analog to this of being like, hmm, the only mechanism of governance that we know how to do to expand the empire is to do war and then to create client states and then to destabilize those client states. Why now is there mass migration? This is going to be the fall of Rome because of the migrants. I wonder. I wonder if there was like Roman Paul Joseph Watson. I just remembered. Like remember. Remember like. Imagine oh, yeah. my shock. A much smaller yeah. map on the wall behind it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the like one of the things I tried to do when I was doing Fall of Rome. What seems like a many, many, many years ago now is that like especially the Visigoths when they crossed the Danube in, in 376, and it's like, oh, this is the end of the, this is the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. They were refugees. They cut a deal. Like they were going to do military service in return for being settled on land. Like that was they they held up their end of the deal. The Romans didn't. Islamizing the Roman Empire, is it? <laughs> I, I, it's, well, it's like I, I read they were I, refugees. I read somewhere, perhaps in like a W. H. Smith book, um, that there was a Visigoth doctor that was like secretly converting Roman babies. <laughs> 
that was like the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. I can't remember I, I, who I it was. I'd love to have a, like, a, a, a gothic no-go zone in my cities. There's just a bunch of guys standing around wearing helmets with nose guards, looking sinister. <laughs> yeah, they're they're wearing trousers. Oh. It was a whole thing, like yeah, trying to trick you into uh, whispering mysterious oh, Germanic chants and shanties. <laughs> would it be? It would be. Um, Gaul would do. Gaul would do a ban on the trouser. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I wanna, but I wanna, I wanna refocus us on this idea. Going back to the idea of, of well, we know that this the 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 capacity of the polity, whether that's conceived of as the Roman Empire or the imperial household or the Roman state or whatever you want to call it, um, the the reduction in capacity and that being down to tons and tons of small decisions all sort of being taken that are all the wrong one. Things getting underfunded, payments not arriving, maybe a bribe being paid in lieu of taxes. And I think that we can see this kind of, we can take Gibbon's idea of decadence, right? This idea that there are just bad people in charge and reframe it to be a structural force, right? We can say that the real problem is the massive concentration of wealth in the hands of a shrinking elite whose interests weren't immoral and weird and foreign like Gibbon thought they were, so which as they were just disconnected from and frequently at odds with the interests of yeah, the policy. It's, it, it's not getting sucked off in the domissoria that makes you the bad person. The bad person is having the domissoria in the first place. Uh, yeah. and it's, it, it's not that you lose touch with like Main Street Rome or whatever. It's, it, it's that you, you have a, a fundamentally inimical, or at the very least indifferent, class interest at work there, right? I love that. We- I love that. We need to we need to reconnect government with your ordinary Wea Appia Roman. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love no, the idea Patrick, that there was like a Roman Bill Clinton just like getting getting sucked off in the Emperor's office. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh Patrick, could you sort of speak to the problem of inequality and its root and its presence at the root of the decline of Rome, should you want to call it that? Yeah, so this is a There is no better parallel, I think, in terms of the sheer level of inequality and the sheer wealth concentrated in very few hands for the present day as the Western Roman Empire, where you had all of these old senatorial families, these like incredibly inbred, um, incredibly wealthy, like effectively each of these families is a a large multinational corporation. You know, you have you have estates in North Africa and you've got estates in Italy and you've got estates in various parts of Gaul and you've got estates in Spain um, and you're doing business on this insane scale. And so the marriage of two uh, members of two of these families is essentially a corporate merger on an enormous scale. Mm. Um, That is the closest parallel for the kind of wealth in private hands that we have in the present day, I think. Um, And why this matters is that, yes, their interests were incredibly disconnected from those of the state because the state was not drawing from from that group of people to serve as bureaucrats and military officers like the like the aristocrats were off doing their own thing um their thing was basically you know getting sucked off in their in their enormous villas mm-hmm. um they like they were incredibly disconnected from the processes of doing power um and so when they got other offers or when they had the opportunity to disconnect from the power structures that were you know taxing them or making them do things that they thought were beneath them um, they they took that. Like if a barbarian comes through and says, okay, I'm king of this place now, you can pay me half of what you were paying them in taxes and I'll leave you alone. Like 
That's a deal that Roman aristocrats took over and over and over and over again whenever they were presented with the opportunity to do it. Mm. Uh, I wonder so if I think they were that a... annoying that you have like fucking Claudia Mattelli is on the View talking about her dad. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were definitely that annoying. <laughs> God damn! Uh, but like the, the 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 parallel I see there, right, between this sort of the political and economic elite just becoming having their interests just disconnected from the society who's who they that they run. Uh, is also like look at all of those senators who were briefed on coronavirus on January 24th mm. and sold off a bunch of stock, made millions of dollars, and then blithely told the public nothing was going to go wrong. It's called you know, the it, free market. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Our consumer I mean, I choice. There's um, something I've been thinking about for a long time, and I'm not entirely sure how to go with uh, like where it leads but yes there i think there's it's not even just the ultra wealthy it's that the wealthy wealthy i think are increasingly disconnected from their localities like i think we have much more of a kind of a i don't know if even cosmopolitan is the right word but it's like you know in my part of the world where i grew up um there were a lot of very wealthy like agricultural families like they were all into commercial agriculture but like they didn't spend like increasingly they don't spend their money in the in the town where I grew up, they spent their money in Hawaii or Palm Springs or like Arizona. And so and where they would just go and hang out with other similarly rich people from elsewhere. And that was what shaped their understanding of the world. It had absolutely nothing to do with their employees or the place that they were from. Like they thought of themselves as kind of like, I, get, I don't know if cosmopolitan's the right word because they were not like we jetting off the, to, to If we like, can do the Alex Jones thing, globalist, right? Because yeah. as a result of a process of globalization rather than meaning it with the like fucking brackets around the side of it. Listen, yes, I'm exactly. a cosmopolitan. I've been to every cheesecake factory in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to be clear, when we say cosmopolitan or globalist, we do not mean it with the Alex with the parentheses like Alex Jones might. No, I I'm not, I am not touching the reverb dial. Yeah. Uh, so, but <laughs> That's I think the gender what we can, dial. What we can think <laughs> about there, right, is that is that like quite often the fall of an empire, whether it's Rome or America or whatever, is portrayed as this big tragedy. Um, and there's no big imperial tragedy to to Rome or even ourselves. It, it's it's simply that people like Kelly Loeffler or Julius Nepos or Richard Branson or Jeff Bezos or Elon Crassus Musk are never, ever going to be able to donate enough ventilators or masks or grain to staunch the bleeding because the wound is one that they made and that they constantly remake by continuing to reproduce their own wealth and power. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a moral issue. It's not a question of vice and virtue. The fact that a lot of these people are themselves deeply immoral uh, it's, it doesn't really enter into it, right? Because it's, it's a question of their class interest. You can be a massive philanthropist uh, and still have this this interest where you just like, uh, oh, I just have the amount that it would take to have several thousand ventilators just kind of <laughs> chilling in my account, and I'm not yeah. going to do anything about it. Well, that's how you start a civilization on Mars, by having that kind of amount of money in your bank account. How else are you going to go to Mars and have your head <laughs> explode like in Total Recall? Uh, I, I, I love to remember the time when Jeff Bezos said, that he, he talked about his money as his winnings, which is very revealing, but then he said that he mm. couldn't think of anything more productive or anything else to do with it other than space exploration. Uh, yeah, that's great. Well, look, I, I love to be just thinking out. about that. They're just practicing millionaire, billionaire self-care, right? It's the idea of, well, <laughs> you could use, like, you know, you could spend your life, you know, 
devoting yourself to other people's needs, but then you're neglecting yourself at the same time. So if you really think about it, blowing yourself up in space is more important than spending your money on ventilators. Space jihad. (laughs) (laughs) What is is Gundam Wing other than space jihad? (laughs) This is some memory TV shit that I predict will come true. So... That, I mean, that's how you end up with like all of these Roman aristocrats in the fifth century building themselves ever larger and more opulent villas um, while they're, while nobody is funding like defense against raiding barbarians. Mm. What's the Roman equivalent of space exploration? What's the thing you can just throw money into a pit about and be like, well, couldn't think of anything else for this? <laughs> the church? <laughs> Damn. Damn, I mean, I really, it. like they, they just donated huge amounts of money to the they just donated huge amounts of money and, and land and all sorts of valuables to the to the church, which is why the church builds up an ins- enough institutional foundation to survive the next several centuries. Right. Mm. Yeah. Damn, I hear Marcus Agrippa has built himself a large fortified camp in Nova Zealandia. So, 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 I mean, what, so I mean, what you're saying is that like churches basically kind of operate back then in the same way that like startups do now. Right. Mm. Um, yeah, they're more, they're more durable. Like once you get a little further into the, (laughs) a little more durable, um, but once, but yeah, I mean, they're like, the church is one place where aristocrats would go to, would, where aristocrats would go to make themselves feel better about their money. Churches are like Soho Uh, houses of, mm. of, uh, but I, I want to move on. I want to move on quickly though. Uh, which is that like, we want to tell, we can talk about an actual example um uh, again in both uh, of roman roman the roman polity and today uh of the interests of the wealthy becoming becoming deeply at odds with the general interest of the polity which is hmm. basically the fact that like the romans they had steam power like they 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 knew about it they they even used it for like fripperies and desk toys and making church doors open so it looked like god was doing it but massive dependence on slaves from like wealthy established aristocrats and landowners basically forestalled steam power from ever becoming anything actually industrial, right? I hear if you sit on your arm for like half an hour before you jack it, it feels like God's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Patrick, could you could you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So basically, the argument that uh, that economists would make is that uh, that, and I think it's a fairly convincing one, is that there's no, very little incentive for uh, for that kind of innovation um you know just to use the most buzzwordy terms we can possibly think of like you're never going to get to the kind of continuous industrial growth um that we uh, that we expect from our present from our present day uh, circumstances if you have an enormous population of slaves and and also where you're expressing your social status as a member of the elite through your ownership Right mm. through your ownership of slaves and through your ownership of property, like what are you trying to get out there and and like perform growth for if um, if you've got what you wanted and what you wanted is social status as reflected through your ownership? I, I, I I'm so glad that we don't have an easy analog to something that prevents us from developing new technology because it's <laughs> abundant and it allows and like an easy show of wealth. I say as I sip my fucking Brent crude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, well, like, that's I'm really the, excited like, for a CEO to get buried with hundreds of delivery riders. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're not that far from that. Like, just to bring it all the way back around to what we were talking about at the very, very beginning. Uh, yeah, but I mean, like, that's one of the interesting and useful things is that, like, Roman society and the ancient world was not capitalist. 
right? Like there, there were capital, it was not capitalism. There were capitalists, I think you can say. I think you can look just about anywhere in history and find capitalists in terms of people who are using their money in the interest of generating profit for themselves. Um, they, who are who are investing, who have an eye toward toward growing their growing their resources. Those people exist, but it's not the same thing as having a system that values and places that kind of investment and growth as the the set goal. Um, if that makes any sort of sense at all, yeah, and like line, I think that's where the line governing is. things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like they didn't have the line that was only invented later. I think think the point I'm trying getting to here, right, is that a political economy keyed to the enrichment of the people in control um, of that political economy will tend to hold back on delivering improvements that deliver quality of life changing, like inventions. Um, So, like the Romans, the the incentives in ancient Rome were around status and so on, was and the large amount of slaves and wars of conquest meant that. The slave economy was durable, and it was very difficult to develop things that were ultimately better for people's quality of life yeah, and long-term, like steam power. And it's the same thing in our case, where we have this massive dependency on oil, but like, like Shell knew that, that, that uh, global warming was going to destroy the world. And by the way, that's the thing that's still coming to destroy the world. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't been replaced by another crisis, um, but they deliberately sat on it. And so you can, you can see, right, like that the people controlling the energy work at Shell, uh, just as the people who controlled the Roman economy, like they just not only were the in, were there strong incentives for low level corruption and bad decision making at a social level, there were also no incentives for improvements to happen when it was profitable for the people in control to not improve. Yeah, and that's yeah, well, why, is, that's why idea, Trash so. Future. That's why Trash Future. Yeah. That's why this podcast is. This is why you have the question: Why do we have all of this abundance, and why is it producing these perverse, sort of useless googles instead of, say, I don't know, ventilators? What? Why is it yeah. giving me a smart salt shaker? Why is it giving me uh, a, a fucking a, a van that cooks the pizza in the back of it while it delivers it to me? Uh, in, this is instead an idea. of healthcare. And I'm just spitballing here, but like, what if we got people to be more scared of climate change by rebranding it something like uh, Chinese warming? <laughs> <laughs> like, is it really a crisis if you can't identify it with a scary other? Mm. Exactly. But uh, so, but like, Patrick, like, like the late Roman Empire, like, it wasn't a poor place, right? No, huh? No, there was. No. It, they. It was. Economically sophisticated, the the material standard of living for a lot of people was higher than it had been in a very very long time, or would be again um, for another thousand ish years. Like in terms of your access to consumer goods, like you could get fancy ass pottery, you could get really good. You, you, you could you get criticize great the wine. empire, yet you're writing that on a fancy pot. Uh, curious. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Look at look at how nice your wax tablet is. Look at that papyrus. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of material, pure material sophistication, the variety of consumer goods you could acquire, the amount of wealth in circulation in society, state capacity. Yes, the Rome, the late Roman Empire could do more than any state before. Or than any state before or after uh, for a very, very, very long time. Your average person had access to goods from much further away than, than they would before. Their per, you know, per capita GDP in the Roman world was higher than it would be again for a very, very long time. 
but yeah, it's a question of incentives. Who has the money? What are they doing with it? And what's the what's the point? And the point was not to make the life of your average um, tenant farmer any better. Yeah, and even then, it's not even not to make the life of the average tenant farmer any better. Uh, maybe that was cut out. I don't know when the Gracchi didn't really go all the way. But yeah. like, you could even see. Well, why that, did like, the why did this guy as Gracchus have to yell? <laughs> but even then, it's once the you can no longer improve the lives of the tenant farmers. Fine, but then it goes to gutting the capacity of the polity to do anything. So, uh, Patrick, I want to go back to your article. Um, the fall of an empire, the end of a polity, a socioeconomic order, a dominant culture, or the intertwined whole looks more like a seri- cascading series of minor, individually unimportant failures than a dramatic ending that appears out of the blue. Carts full of olive oil failing to arrive at some nameless fort because of a dysfunctional military bureaucracy, a corrupt official deciding to cook the boots and claim taxes were not collected when they really weren't, a greedy aristocrat bribing the official instead of paying his bill, an aqueduct falling to pieces and no one willing to front the funds to repair it, a shared office space company that has somehow valued at $47 billion <laughs> just so a Japanese banking conglomerate can avoid uh, realizing any losses. Ah, damn, we laboro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I Wait, think... Wouldn't it be laborum? Riley, don't, try and, don't try and Latin me. <laughs> Sorry, Patrick, carry on. This is, just, this is such, the, such the fancy classics boys episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the big... Um, that was the thing I realized like several years into studying like the end of the Roman world. It was just these, all these little things. It's like, you know, you, and you can see this happen. Like, so I tracked in very great detail where letters were sent. And what becomes very clear is that as the Roman state falls apart, like people's worlds get smaller, like you can't send a letter as far. There's a lot less kind of long distance communication and contact. And that's reflected in, um, the economic that's reflected in um, the economic picture too. Like goods just don't travel as far. Like everybody's world gets more local and it gets more smaller. And I think that more smaller, Jesus. Um, it's just like, and I think that's a reflection of the whole thing. It's like you, a road falls apart and nobody repairs it. You put up a border where there wasn't a border before. And now you can't, now you can't go talk to your cousin. Um, that's like small stuff, but in the aggregate, it matters a very, very, very great deal. And like the fall, like how a military establishment falls apart is the same deal. And like there's that really, uh, really sad story of how the soldiers from um, it's uh, Raetia. So like kind of what's now more tw- like towards Switzerland and Austria, like how the soldiers there sent somebody to go check on their pay and the barbarians killed the guy as he was going to look for it. And then the province falls apart. Mm. Like that's the. Like, that's the story. Like, that's the story of the end of the Roman Empire. It's not like the Visigoths in Rome pulling a statue down with ropes for like, like, you know, doing the doing statues of Lenin at the end of the Soviet Union or Saddam Hussein in 2003. Like, that's not like the end of the empire is really sad kind of day to day stuff. Mm. And I think it's the same thing now. It's 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 masks not showing up to a to a hospital fighting a pandemic. It's, you know, the the president's son-in-law trying to do like capital D deals to get ventilators for cheaper and then nobody getting the ventilators mm. like that's the that to me is the essence of the end of an empire or like how many bridges in the United States need to be replaced um, are literally falling apart or like poison or like uh, yeah, building water British, pipes that are doing in US politics. We love to say it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like it's stuff like that. Like, well, the 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 thing I I think about right when it comes to this as well is the fact that in Britain for like the last ten years, uh, shortfalls in education funding have been such that teachers on 
sort of decreasing real term salaries are having to go out and purchase school supplies yeah, for their students so they can books. continue teaching lessons. Yeah. And so like there that and that can tick over for a while. Not forever. But it's like it's, it's, it's interesting you said that because, like Patrick, you mentioned uh, uh, the military aspect. That's that's my vibe. That's my deal. Um, and like th exactly the same thing. You can fight a lot of wars. You can win a lot of wars. Even you can, if you want, you can do the Mithridatic Wars, and you can create this kind of giant Middle Eastern proxy that's very profitable, and then sucks in all of your establishments, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, but like eventually, you start like it, 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 the, there's a leak. In that boat, and it's gonna fucking build up over time, and eventually you start losing in Germania, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. You well, it's it's even like think about roads, right? Like hmm. you can have uh, you've got this enormous empire-spanning series of uh, series of roadways, right? Now maybe you've got like a bridge falls apart in your local neighborhood, and the aristocrat is like, "I like that bridge. I'm gonna go like I'll send my uh, my tenant like farmers bridge, down to fix you can it. Keep it, yeah." Yeah, I'll, I'll go send them down to do that. But that doesn't fix the next bridge over because maybe that aristocrat doesn't do it or maybe there isn't anybody there who decides it's a big enough deal. That doesn't fix the bridge 100 miles away. That doesn't fix the road that washes away in a, in a flash flood 300 miles away. Like that's the at some point you need to be like you need these large scale state level systems to work in order to maintain the whole. Mm -hmm. um, like and I think that that is that to me is one of the big lessons is like even if on a local level, like you see uh, barbarian kings would set up the occasional mile marker when they fixed a road or fixed a bridge or something. And they'd be like, look, you know, king, king, whatever of the of the Burgundians fixed this road. Um, but that doesn't do anything for the road that washed away 10 miles, uh, 10 miles away. Mm. Like this is this is this is why we're not anarchists, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. And we, again, we'll yeah. get into this. I have a, I have a thing later about this. Yeah. So, but yeah. before we Listen, talk about mate, it later, we've had enough of roads here in Cisalpine Gaul because it's all <laughs> roads that's been bringing people coming over here, and that's why we need a border because you got all these people from Transalpine Gaul coming over here <laughs> with their genders. We don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we carry on to peering into the future, uh, there's one more passage from your article that I want to read, Patrick. When the real issues come up, healthy states, the ones capable of handling and minimizing everyday dysfunction, so like these roads washing away and stuff, have a great deal more capacity to respond than those happily waltzing towards their end. But by the time the obvious glaring crisis arrives and the true scale of the problem becomes clear, it's too late. The disaster, whether it's a major crisis of political legit legitimacy, the coronavirus pandemic, or the climate catastrophe, doesn't so much break the system as show just how broken the system already was. Wait, you're saying Kim Kardashian we... didn't really break the internet? She just showed how broken the internet already was. <laughs> we make I an mean, exception for the Kardashians around here. Yes. Mm. And I think like, this, this shows us, right, that there are some, some polities are just ha weathering these crises differently and more effectively than others. Those that have decided a stable to, like, policy kill. Those mm. that have decided to systematically dig away at their own capacity to do anything uh, for the purposes of line go up. Uh, they're the ones that are, are suffering most and the ones that still have state capacity to respond to problems by just making solutions happen, whether that's rebuilding a road washed away by a, uh, a flood or standing up a plague hospital in 10 days like they did in Wuhan, right? Like this means that different polities, much like they did also in, you know, in, in ancient Rome, as Britain and Provence and Ravenna would have experienced the fall of Rome differently, different polities are weathering the crisis of global neoliberalism differently. Hmm. And so then we can ask how this theory that these different polities weather the same crisis differently, how does that augur 
for our future. <laughs> so glad well, so, we have the soundboard. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I think take Denmark as a good example of this. Like Denmark is not perfect. Um, I think it, I, this is not a an endorsement of everything this, the state of Denmark has ever done or will do or is doing right now. But look at how relatively straightforward it was for Denmark to figure out how to um, how to keep people's people getting money and keep the economy relatively online during this pandemic, right? They were just like, okay, if you don't fire anybody, you'll keep it. We'll we'll send money to firms, and you will keep getting paid, right? That I only had happened like, money from the Muslim re-education camps, which we don't <laughs> need at the moment. Yeah, I mean, like again, not a, like not a not an endorsement of everything yeah, the Danish you, state you just, is doing you just, like, at this moment. Skim it off of the top of the giant horde of like looted refugee jewelry. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's yeah, where yeah. we start. Um, but like that's a that's a relative that's a simple straightforward viable solution to that particular problem right the that how are you going to keep people employed how are you going to b- bring your economy back online hopefully as soon as you don't have to be sheltering in place anymore that's how you do it that's not something that the united states is capable of doing mm. um that is there we do not have the state capacity to handle that either there is not enough political will to do it it's a technical challenge that that the american bureaucracy cannot handle um we have no way here of making that of even approaching that as an option for us to work with like that's that's a looted state can't do that i mean like how do you end up with you know a better than nothing but still terrible corona uh, like coronavirus relief bill because nobody like essentially nobody left in at the highest levels of american federal government has any idea how to legislate like We've just that is not a skill set that has been selected for over the past few decades. Like the people who are still left who know how to do that, nobody's listening to them. Mm. Well, especially I think that's true because again, since the revolution of 1980, we reimagined government's main job as getting out of the way. Um, and so we, we basically got uh, the party mechanisms chose a bunch of people who were brilliant at reducing the government's role and enabling the private markets uh, everywhere they possibly could. And so then you end up with something like Sam Brownback, um, who creates like that's, a, uh, that's an urban dictionary ass name. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, um, was uh, it was uh, Kansas or Kentucky? Kansas, was, uh, Kansas. Sam, yeah, yeah, Kansas, yeah, Kansas under Sam Brownback, where he was like, okay, we're going to privatize literally everything. We're not going to leave anything, anything there. But if you ask Sam Brownback or like any of the uh, Ben Sass or whatever to actually do something. Rather than just undo something, just hmm. the same thing with uh, with the conservatives in power here. You're asking ministers whose whole brief, their whole career, has been undo things, undo the state, Look, roll it's, it back. It's, it's fine. You just you just let the market step in, and the market will do it. And the yeah, the problem is you you have yeah. you have hollowed out the the state infrastructure that makes those markets possible to the point where like. You can't depend on like we talk about like the People's Republic of Walmart or whatever. Or we talk about Amazon. Amazon as as a political actor, as as like a, a logistical actor, is it has long been this kind of parasite on the U.S. Postal Service, amongst others. And for this, like Amazon is not going to fucking help you deliver ventilators for the same reason that during like the late Roman Empire, you're not going to be able to keep up your business mining tin in Hispania and selling it in fucking Lebanon. It just isn't possible anymore. Damn, the Patreon of its day, truly. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much of the so much of what used to be state capacity is now in private hands. 
Um, that's it reminds me a lot the situation that we're that we're edging toward now of the later Middle Ages and the early modern period where states had to cut deals with non-state actors in order to perform state functions. Mm. Right? Like so to collect taxes in, you know, in the late 15th, early 16th centuries, if you're the if you're uh, if you're the city of London and you need tax money, you can't collect it yourself. You have to cut deals with the guilds to get them to do the tax collecting for you. Um, that's made not a very just good like, deal with the guilds. A fantastic deal, honestly. <laughs> the rope makers, the tailors, they're going to be collecting a lot of taxes, and by that I mean a large amount. <laughs> yeah, we got we got a lot from the Mercers. The Mercers are doing great. The Spicers are doing great things. Um, sure, yeah, I mean, I think there's. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think there's just a lot of like what we're realizing now as we're as we're in this situation is just how much of what was formerly state capacity is in private hands and how little you can make the how little you can force those private hands to do mm. or how much or how little will there is to make those private hands do anything yeah we, we we get to my theory at this point because i developed a theory i developed a very a very scientific historical theory about this about which way things can go from here about sort of which way western man uh, and I, I, I thought of the like, you know, the political compass where you have like authoritarian, uh, libertarian, left, right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I changed those axes to a very scientific good and bad, and uh, big policy and small policy, right. So depending on how things fracture, um, because mm -hmm. like a, as we've as we've talked about, the, there were like the Roman Empire, diverse place. And so you ended up with some places that remained very powerful, and that's how you get the Eastern Roman Empire. So, like, it's it's entirely possible that you have a, a a bad small policy is just like everything fractures, and you work for the sports direct guys' fief. You, you work for like the guild of posters or whatever, <laughs> and, and 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 their political power extends fifty meters down the road, and then there's another guy who's exactly like that. Unfortunately, and, uh, Mike yeah. Ashley has been killed by the Parthians on an ill-fated expedition. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I think that's that's very possible. Uh, also, there is like, I suppose, possibly a good version of this, which is like the people setting up mutual aid networks, uh, which again will never be able to do state capacity stuff, but will be able to maybe I don't know make sure that people in that fifty meter radius don't starve, which is nice. Um, whereas the big, the big policies as they survive. Where we want to be the, is the big question mark is the big policy, good politics, right? <laughs> um, I don't know if that's possible. I don't know what that looks like. What I do know what looks like is big policy, bad politics, and that is California secedes, is largely self-sufficient, and you are Basileus Gavin Newsom the 13th eunuch's eunuch secretary. <laughs> you hate to see that. Oh. <laughs> That's bleak, man. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm fun at parties. <laughs> <laughs> what if your yeah. politics was really big, Black Mirror? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious, like how, how, like, and this is a question just for for everybody for the floor is how do we, how do we feel? What do we feel the potential, like, uh, the fractures are in our society? What do we think are potentially powerful actors in a in a, in a world where like the the established order is not going to necessarily hold up? Do we think? Like China is going to remain cohesive, I think probably. Do we? What do we think about the U.S. military or Amazon or the EU or whatever else? There'll be two groups of people who are going to be more dependent on. The first is going to be the volunteer border guards, um, the home <laughs> counties dads, 100%. who like this is their moment. 
Um, and I guess they, they're like, you know, they're going to be like the modern day guilds, right? Um, mm. And the second are the incels who studied the blade when we were all going out to parties. And now we're, <laughs> now we're seeking the help. I love, um, I love to like unite all of London under like the, the warrior Deliveroo kings of Wessex. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is going around on mopeds with fucking scimitars. <laughs> I think that's a, hilarious. But B, I think that like that, that question does assume a lot of quite dramatic immediate collapse and right like I, I think it's not necessarily a I'm not, given. I'm not saying that this is all yeah. going to happen overnight. I'm not no. saying you're going to wake up tomorrow no, and be on Mike Ashley's farm. I'm saying that, like, <laughs> I, but like, as, we, we talked about this happening within within like the scale of a lifetime. Do, do do we think that we are going to be of old age in a world that still contains a United States of America or a European Union or a United Kingdom? So, if you had asked me that question four years ago, I would have laid. I would have thought it was a possibility, but I would have laid relatively long odds against that outcome. As mm. we look at it right now in 2020, that looks a lot more likely to me. I mean, the I just think there are so many fracture points and points of friction within the United States that like it's easy it's increasingly easy to foresee scenarios in which other levels of political organization either emerge or become more salient. Right. So like imagine a hypothetical scenario here, like where the Trump administration says, oh, no, we're, we're going to reopen everything. We're going to reopen everything. And the governor of California and the governor of New York and the governor of New Jersey just tell him to go fuck himself, hmm. which is the likeliest outcome there, right? So that's not an immediate thing because we're like, oh, Trump's a joke. Maybe he loses in November, whatever. Uh, but in the long run, you, have an, you now have an established precedent for state governors just ignoring a federal directive, right? And so that's the, that's the scenario in which these things snowball and become increasingly salient. And maybe, you know, you've already got the governors of the of um, New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Connecticut all talking about how they're going to jointly deal with the coronavirus. Like that's not that far to imagine how a, an ad hoc informal organization like that can become more formalized and represent an alternative form of political organization. Um, those are the kinds of scenarios that just look increasingly more likely and become increasingly more likely as you put society under pressure and states under pressure through a crisis like this. I don't know. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 the one, the one thing I would say, and as part of this, like, I'm not laying out my my bets here. I just want to ask it as an open question and have the listener think about this. I'm not making like a a 28 way parlay on this state season, this state does it or whatever. But like for the listener. Yeah, yeah. But what I do want to, I, I, what I want to remind people of, because I, I always do the thing where we talk about, where we talked about this stuff before the coronavirus, the thing I would say was we had maybe like 10 years of relative normalcy left to be distributed for climate change. That's still true, which is fun. But also we're like maybe two weeks away from the peak of the coronavirus deaths. And I don't know how that's going to change matters. And I, I want people to bear that in mind. Well, I think people are I... already rationalizing it in a way as to like just uphold the current state of things. It's like all the people being like, and this is people who I didn't realize were like this lib, like brain fucked, but like all the people mm. who are like, oh, you know, fucking Bay Rishi Sunak. And it's like, he's a Tory. He's going to keep <laughs> doing that. He is being forced to give you some shit that you want by this like world ending circumstance. And as soon as he could not do that, he will. The way I tend to approach thinking about this kind of thing 
is by thinking about systems and how systems can respond and what options they have as systems to respond to challenges that are put in front of them. So for example, Amazon is a system. Amazon is a system that depends on the uh, United States Postal Service. But also the governments of California and New York are also systems that depend on the Fed producing money. Mm, and for now, Mr. Chapa. And, and, yeah, well, but so and so the question then is how long can the um say California and New York, the the governors who are probably going to tell Trump to go fuck himself when he says to go back to work, how long can they hold out when say they're not able to print their own money? We actually had a comparable problem in Europe uh with the Euro eurozone crisis which mm. was it was threatening the stability of the system. Greece and Italy and, and, and Greece and Italy were telling Germany to fuck off and vice versa. And you know, you had this impossible trinity where they were experiencing macroeconomic shocks differently. They weren't able to print their own money, and yet that money was free, freely floating against other currencies. They were in an impossible situation, and austerity was the only way through that. So, a system placed under stress creates a norm of austerity to save itself. So, my oh, question is... California will just introduce Elon Musk bucks, surely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I tell you what, though, I, I'm feeling great about my one-day Duolingo Mandarin streak. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so the systems of New York and California are going to be, are go if they do ignore Trump's order, are going to be facing another systemic challenge where they are going to very quickly, like we always say, where are you going to pay for it? We always say, the Fed, print money. Fuck it, money printer go burr. But they can't make the money printer go burr. No. So they're but, but going again, to be put yet, into situation. Well, they're, uh, no, but that, Alice, that's what I'm getting to. Mm. They're going to be put into a situation where they may have to make that kind of decision. Elon Musk bucks. Yeah. But, so we're, at, but we're asking what the mechanism is that, say, leads to the splintering of the US polity. It is the... It is the collision of um, irreconcilably different forces mm. that need to create a new system in order to both perpetuate themselves. I, I hope that when California starts like uh, pressing coins, they just do the same thing that King Offa did and accidentally print the Shahada on them. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> right. So I mean, that's. But anyway, that's that's my two cents. I love how working at I the mint of happening. California and printing the shahada on the coins. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, um, one sorry, option uh, here that we haven't like uh, that that I don't think we fully appreciate enough is like, okay, so can you just keep the United States as some kind of currency union and hmm. keep the Fed but ditch other federal government functions? Because wouldn't that be the easiest solution to this? Is like, sure, you've got a president, but you just ignore him, uh, like he's like, like a holy a, Roman like emperor. A Exactly. Like the whole, that's exactly the parallel I was going for is huh. like everybody's just doing their thing and you've got this guy who's like going to issue the odd proclamation, but nobody really pays attention. He's just this and weird inbred guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's just he's, he's got a jaw that extends out two feet. Um, he can't he can't sire any children, but, you know, he's there. So he's, he's from Spain for some reason. <laughs> he hates McDonald's just 24 hours a day. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think one thing I would say is that, like, uh, I, I keep coming back to this idea of Claudia Mattelli as Roman Meghan McCain talking about her father, and I want to think about, I want to, like, really fix in my mind the image of the Roman pod save Johns, or <laughs> the Roman James Ball, or the Roman Bill Crystal, who is like, 
No, we don't have to change, actually. This is fine. Damn. Uh, the, 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 the pod the, save John's yeah. are a triumvirate of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I want to think about the guy who is like, hmm, this, this, this world that we are now, I think, inevitably leaving behind in some way or another, had all of these virtues, and but who identifies every single one of those virtues incorrectly. I want to think about that guy. Because the, 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 the thing about the Roman Empire was, you could fucking get schnippers anytime you wanted, right? <laughs> See, I, I know we posed a hard question to you, Patrick, but can you mm -hmm. think of that kind of Roman version of our, our modern-day doofus? Yes, so there's a, a Gallic aristocrat. <laughs> yes, I love yeah, how you came out like that. Yeah. Oh no, I yeah. have exactly the guy. There was a Gallic aristocrat named Ruricius of Limoges <laughs> uh, who wrote a bunch of letters and he managed to, over the course of this this large surviving letter collection, it's like 60-something letters, managed to say absolutely nothing about the world he lived in, um, <laughs> like about the broader world that he lived in. Like he was just fundamentally unconcerned. Like he lived in what was then the Visigothic kingdom. Um, but if you're reading his letters, you would never know really that anything has changed at all. Hmm. Like this guy was just like he was doing he was doing his poetry and he was uh, he was eventually the bishop. But because he still had kids, he was just the bishop because that's now the job that <laughs> that an aristocrat has in like this immediately post Roman city. Like. You would read this guy's letters and think that nothing important had changed and be like, oh, you know, things were things were pretty cool back then, but things are pretty cool now. We've still got blah, 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 blah. That's the guy. Oh, my God. He's the kind of person who, like, <laughs> loves Saturday Night Live clapbacks about Trump. He, like, he's exactly. like the, that we could have had four years of Kate McKinnon no. doing Elizabeth Warren impressions. He's, he's, exactly. he's Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk, like, never got out of 2016, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, and he's like, I, I kind of, yeah. I'm, I'm imagining this guy more as someone who's saying, yeah, things would be great if only we could get that orange Odawaka out of there. Well, that's true, yeah. Uh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. But, but, um, the, but at the end of the day, the existence of the, for that guy, the key point is that the existence of the orange Odawaka doesn't do anything to him. No. Right? He's going like, to be just fine. The, yeah, he's fun. Like those guys are fundamentally disconnected from any of the negative outcomes. Oh, of that, that makes me so angry. Maybe I hope could, we have more of a French just... Revolution vibe where those guys absolutely are not fine, and it drives them insane for the next three hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just I love thinking about this doofus in, in Gaul who set up the Emperor Nero Institute for Fiscal Stability. <laughs> 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 there was a whole class of those dudes. They kept writing letters like nothing had changed, using the same god-awful language that's almost impossible to translate, making yeah. the same god-awful jokes, sending their <laughs> their fail sons to do the exact same thing. Like it's Epic epistolary like, clapbacks. Exactly. No, oh my god. Yeah. Okay, my god. I, 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 I was gonna say I realized who this is. These are like this is like Roman Julia Hartley Brewer, right? Where like even though you're in the midst of a global <laughs> pandemic, the issue is still trans people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it's the same thing. All of their letters actually end uh, with an advertisement for a company that will come bring you uh, a reclining couch, <laughs> and then they'll take it back after a hundred days. <laughs> mm. uh, That's exactly it. And if you, if you, also if you amazing use powders and ointments that will help the function of your animus. <laughs> and if you, if you use the promo, if you use the promo code uh, nep Nepos. Uh, then we'll give you 20 <laughs> sesterces off if you buy on the eyes. Um, anyway, 
Uh, so with with that with that under wraps and with now having f- thoroughly explored how neither the uh, ancient Roman world nor the current world uh, orders really have the institutional options to deal with the existential threats they face towards the end of their time, largely for reasons of their own doing. I for one um, feel a lot better. Yeah, <laughs> we we all just start falling at this point. <laughs> well, welcome to gravity, baby. <laughs> well, feel its embrace. Um, it's, what's but, the Alan Bennett line history? It's just one fucking thing after another. <laughs> uh, sometimes very fast. But Patrick, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, yeah. with you. It's, it's been great. We've got to have you back yeah. on. Yes, absolutely. Would love to. Anytime. But for a silly, maybe we'll like review a movie or something. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Glad Glad the, the 2004 masterpiece King Arthur. Any oh, interest? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we should do lots that. Lots yeah, of interest. That'd be, that'd be dope. Hell yeah, baby! <laughs> <laughs> what about the King Arthur from a couple of years ago with David Beckham in it for some reason? <laughs> oh my god, I love that movie so much. It was so stupid. It was okay. so stupid. <laughs> All right, it. sold. All right, we're gonna. Okay, thank you. Th- don't forget to check out Tides of History. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. In a couple of months, we have Patrick back on to watch the Guy Ritchie King Arthur movie because <laughs> uh, we'll all still be in quarantine. I saw um, that on a date in Russian. If you just, <laughs> oh, it wasn't a good date. That, that story to be told in full. Then, yes. uh, don't forget. Also, you know what it is. We have that Patreon. Uh, sign up for it for more of us and yeah, our and, James and get and a observations. T-shirt. Get a goddamn T-shirt to wear oh, yes. in your house. Please buy a T-shirt. We've not been mentioning it on the episodes, but there are t-shirts. Buy them. Email the address, and you will have one. Yes, you know, you know what it is in the description. Yeah, line must go up. (laughs) Anyway, trash future line must continue to go up. Whatever happens to the other lines? In in, in this case, the line is just like cleanliness of Milo's mum's hallway. Exactly. (laughs) Remove the t-shirts from the hallway. Anyway, okay. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Patrick. Our theme song is Here We Go by Ginseng. Catch it on Spotify. You've got time. You have no excuse not to listen to it. <laughs> and we'll see you on the Patreon on Thursday or see you back on the free feed next Tuesday. Later.